So this morning uh, I was walking through Brixton and I was listening to a 90s playlist on Spotify and it was really good. It was stuff like The Cure, it was Verve, like a bunch of good stuff. And then all of a sudden a uh, picture of you by Boyzone came on and I had the startling revelation that I really like that song. Uh, <laughs> is that me getting older or is it that really a good song? I actually don't like, know when's the last time you, When's the last time you listened to it? I don't think I know it. You're going to have to hum it or sing it for me. Uh, I'm going to put it in the show. I think in order to put, because I'm just after putting that song in, into the episode, I think in order to get around um, licensing and stuff, we have to review it. And I think that's okay as I like, covered by fair use. So quickly review that song for me. It's terrible. It's <laughs> a club banger. And so after that song, oh, so I was listening to that song while walking along and I was listening to it on my noise cancelling headphones. I've got these Bose noise cancelling headphones that I, I use when I'm on the underground so I can hear myself think, shut up. Uh, but I have them turned up to the max, the noise cancelling on it. Oh yeah, you uh, know that setting to the max? <laughs> uh, I had the noise cancelling up so high that I didn't realise I was kind of singing to myself. Not loud, but you can't, you know, kind of mumble singing. <laughs> and uh, I was walking along and I saw a cute doggy. And so as I am wont to do, I stopped to pet the doggy. And all of a sudden I got a tap on my shoulder. I said all of a sudden, it was probably like two minutes later. And it was the owner who was after coming out of the Tesco or whatever that the dog was outside of. And they were just trying to get by me so they could get the dog off the leash. But I took off my headphones because I was so surprised. And she was laughing at me. And she was laughing at me because it turns out I was singing Picture of You to the Dog. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, Richie, you're going to become one of those characters that people talk about in Brixton, like walking around. <laughs> Oh, look, there's the nerdy headphones boy that keeps on singing 90s pop tunes to animals outside shops. Oh, fuck. Can you, can you hear anything? Nothing. Okay, cool. Because there's, um, there's a bunch of kids having a little get-together out the back of <laughs> my neighbours. So if you hear the sounds of millennials having a good time, you let me know and I'll shut the window. Oh, I thought you meant like actual kids. No, no, no. Just, I say, I mean, people that are probably my age or maybe even a little <laughs> bit older. But, you know, having fun with their with their friends and family as opposed to sitting in a dark room podcasting in the summer yeah. day. Taking selfies in the sun instead of, instead of audio selfies, which is what we're doing. News! News! Syria! Syria is still a story. It's only been 10 years since the civil war started and continues to rage and bad shit keeps on happening. Mm, And right now, I believe, like as we're recording this on on Saturday the 14th, shit's unfolding as we speak. Yeah, well, it happened last night this morning. Um, So last week, this in a town in Syria, loads of civilians were attacked by chemical weapons. Um, Mm -hmm. They presume it's a mixture of chlorine gas, which is not as potent a chemical weapon. And in fact, might, might not even be banned but it was mixed in with some like more severe nerve agent and caused an awful lot of damage and quite a few people were killed. And the pictures coming out of there were pretty horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, dead families, kids having to be hosed down, clothes being oh, burned, God. like anything they did to try and help it. So again, this is like the third or fourth time that 
the red line set by the international community about the use of chemical weapons in this conflict have, has been crossed mm-hmm. by Assad. So Donald Trump immediately started treating, uh, tweeting, saying, um, oh, watch out, we're, we're going to attack you again. Yeah, that, that was earlier on this week, right? Yeah, this is all going okay. on this week. Yep. Uh, Russia and Iran, who are Assad's allies, say it didn't happen. They said it was fake. And they blocked any um, chance that the UN had to get involved, which, to be honest, is not a surprise. That's exactly what everyone expected to happen because... So, sorry, when you say blocked any chance the UN has to intervene, is that uh, bureaucratically or is that like physically blocking? Like, what, what do we mean by block? Uh, so, physically... In terms of any possible UN sanctioned um, like response, be it like mm-hmm. a physical military response, they they blocked that, and they also indeed blocked any investigations to even find out what exactly happened. Right. Okay. So they just said it didn't happen. We don't want any more attention to be drawn to it. So yeah. that meant that the US had to go off and basically run on its own. The UK and France, um, they've been kicking up a lot of um, steam about it during the week as well. France especially, actually, Macron was really, really vocal in saying that they needed to to strike against Assad. But all things being the way they are in the world, if the US aren't willing to get behind it militarily, it wasn't going to be likely that the other two were. Right. There was a lot of internal discussion, I guess, in the US defense and intelligence communities. They, mm-hmm. They're certain that Assad did it, but they're terrified about escalating it beyond just a rebuttal, like a, like some, some sort of a slapdown to show that you're not supposed to be using these weapons in that war. Mm-hmm. Because if they intervene too much, they, they pose the risk of striking Russian or Iranian soldiers who were actually working on the ground in the war, and that would just escalate things even more. Of course. So what they work towards, which is what they did this morning, was a targeted strike with missiles and long-range bombers on key chemical weapons facilities um, run by the Assad regime to try and dampen their ability to to use the weapons again. Uh, are these facilities close to any major populated areas or are they kind of off on their own? Uh, no, they are. They're pretty close. Um, one of them is in Damascus, which is yeah, capital. the main capital city and is is Assad's stronghold. So I'm, I'm, I, like, it's too early to tell if there have been any, even any casualties. I'm not sure. There may not have, have been. There- been countermeasures in terms of anti-missile well yeah that's another thing as well is this isn't the same as drone attacks in the western northwestern provinces of pakistan or afghanistan or indeed parts of iraq or the parts of syria not controlled by the Assad regime because the syrian army have pretty complex and comprehensive um anti-missile and anti-aircraft defense capabilities Mm -hmm. so the likelihood of missiles being stopped from intercepting their targets or even potentially bombers from being shot down and American pilots getting hurt are pretty high, mm-hmm. which is another thing. Because if that was to happen, that's another escalation, which the US government does not want to do. Of course. I think the Assad regime is claiming that they stopped three quarters of the missiles from hitting their targets. We're never really going to know if that's true or not. And right, it'll, right. Take a, it'll take a little while for them to actually assess what kind of an impact they had. For when the dust literally settles. Yeah, when the dust settles and when their boots on the ground, their informants and their spy networks actually send back pictures or satellite photos or whatever way they have of assessing how successful the strike was. My guess is that it's not going to make a difference. Assad has basically already won and he's just slowly making his way to 
solidifying his victory. It's not going to be an all-out victory. He's not going to go back and become the all-out ruler of the territory formerly known as Syria. Mm. It's probably going to be little enclaves broken up around the place and he's going to be like the dominant power. But he's still backed by Russia. He's still backed by Iran. And if he wanted to use chemical weapons again, he probably would. Do you think currently there's a, a chance of Russia getting more involved physically based off what we know right now? Russia are already incredibly involved physically in Syria. In fact, the Russians conduct airstrikes on behalf of the Assad regime. And there is a possibility that the the chemical weapons that are being used are either directly made by the Russians or the Russians are helping Assad make mm-hmm. the weapons. Right. That That's pretty unprovable at the moment. And I don't know if, if the US and UK and France even want to find out if that is true, because that would mean they would have to respond pretty comprehensively mm-hmm. against Russia, which is a whole yeah. a whole different a whole different story. So yeah, it's a continually shit situation out there and I can't see it getting any better. But Trump is going to be happy because oh, he used his big American military might to blow up some people. Isn't it crazy when you, when you hear him give like these formal addresses where he talks about um, missile strikes that like 10 years ago he was on TV because he was on The Apprentice. <laughs> it's, it's just like, I still, I know that's nothing new. That is not a, a new revelation, but I was, I was watching a, 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 a video on my Facebook there and it's just like, this is just weird. It's never normalized. It has never gotten normal. Like every so often you just still just go, oh my God, that dude is actually the president of the United States. And it, it I don't think it'll ever feel normal. No, I don't want it to feel normal. <laughs> that's yeah, that's probably a good thing. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Um, next story. Next story. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg. Little Zucky goes to Washington. That little scam. Have you, did you see the cushion? The cushion? You, oh, you missed the cushion. There's a cushion? <laughs> Do you know that Mark Zuckerberg is only five foot seven inches tall? Really? I never knew that. Oh, bless. Okay, I'm Googling Zuckerberg cushion. He's teeny weeny. <laughs> Oh, sorry, sorry. Just the first result is him sitting down and like five red arrows pointing to his arse and the cushion he's on. You don't need arrows to point. It's a big, thick four inch cushion that is like sitting on top of the seat provided in, in the in the US capital for him to sit yeah, on. Yeah, you know when you're a kid and you go to the barbers and you're too short to, to reach up to like the mirror. So they, they give you a little booster. It's kind of like that. That's that's exactly what this is. And so yeah. little little Zucky had that when he was sitting in front of the Senate and House committees. Less. And holy crap, he had the piss ripped out of him. Deservedly so. Yeah. I don't know. I guess because actually looking at the height of the table, if he didn't have that, I think his chin would have been resting on the table. <laughs> it's just his his eyes above the wood of the table darting around back and forth. Our Senator, I think you'll find. <laughs> What's that little guy? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So anyway, the, so there was two. There was two different hearings. Um, he was called in front of a Senate Joint Committee. It ended up being forty senators, which is like nearly half of the Senate. And a lot of the senators are pretty aged mm. members who have been there for quite a while. And it's not an understatement to say that they don't really understand the technology that they were trying to question. Not Mark at all. Zuckerberg the, based on yeah, the quality of their discourse speaks volumes about that. But before we get to that, why was he brought there? He was brought there as as a general response to all the crazy shit that's been going on with Facebook <laughs> in the last couple of years. It's the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Russian interference in the 2016 elections and Cambridge Analytica being the two big ones to stand out. Mm-hmm. And he agreed to go in front. He was also called by Westminster, but he declined that invitation, but he accepted the one to go to Washington. Yeah. Um, the Senate, most of their questions were pointed towards, hey, Mark, how... How do you want us to regulate you? If you want us to regulate you at all. Yeah. 
<laughs> because they really don't know what to do. Um, no, like the, that, the, the, that's the thing. Is Facebook a media company? Is it a social network? Is it a, a publishing house? Is it a data collection industry? What is it? Yeah, well, it's so new. No one knows. Like anyone who claims to be an expert in social media, they're not really. Like no one fully knows what this is yet because it's so new. Yes, actually, yeah, that's true. I mean, I was at a talk during the week about fake news and Ooh, its implications. I'm Steve Bird. I go to talks. Yeah, I, I am, and I do. One of the first speakers was a was a, a Trinity College historian, and she pointed out that look, this is it's Gutenberg the Zuck, the Zuckerberg here. This is like the equivalent of the printing press revolution, mm-hmm. and we're only at the start of it. So this sounds like a great rap. Hold on, hold on. Oh, rap. Gutenberg the Zuckerberg. <laughs> I'm not going to drop a beat. I'm going to let it fly. Um, I'm going to hold on to my beats, if you don't mind. He's going to, she's basically telling us that like, you need to hold on to your seats and just let it fly. We've no idea what's going to happen here. So like, this is, this is Washington's attempt to try and show the people of the United States that it's making some approach to try and fix things, but it doesn't know Mm -hmm. what to do. The second day I thought was a little bit better. Um, The members of the house had more pointed questions, especially around like questions about is Facebook a monopoly? Mm -hmm. Because if if it is a monopoly, there are actually like laws that exist for them to maybe break it up or regulate it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then other questions coming from the conservative side about uh, diamond and silk. Diamond and silk? Diamond and silk. You're, You're not aware? No, is this the is this the name of the rapper who's doing Gutenberg to Zuckerberg? Uh, nope. <laughs> so the photograph of two African American ladies was held up, and uh, Zuckerberg was asked, "Do you know these ladies?" And he said, "I believe that's Diamond and Silk." Diamond and Silk are Trump supporting conservative vloggers who have a massive following on Twitter, but ah. were banned from Facebook a couple of days before the hearings on the basis that their their content was inappropriate. Right. Inappropriate in what manner? Well, this is it. Zuckerberg said it was a mistake and they're looking into it. But the Conservatives jumped on by saying, are you saying, because he pointed out that we do have restrictions on content on the basis of like, stopping people from hearing hate speech or, or terrorism crap. Mm-hmm. So then the Conservatives are like, are you saying that any Conservative opinions is hate, hate speech and terrorism? Mm. And he dodge the questions as he was trained to do. Of course, yeah. But I would recommend anybody to look up um, Diamond and Silk. Uh, they're, in terms of their content, it's pretty horrendous. Um, mm-hmm. they, they espouse conspiracy theories. They just wave flags <sighs> for Trump. But they're doing it in the manner of two very ebullient um, African-American ladies. And it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> okay, I'll <laughs> link show notes. Which is obviously why a lot of people, um, a lot of people who, who enjoy that kind of, who enjoy what they're saying are enjoying it being said in a new way. Right. Okay. It's definitely a different approach to what you normally expect from Trump supporters. Of course. I would recommend before we move on, because it seems like, again, we talk about this being so new and so hard to regulate. I think the he- one of the healthiest things you can do is kind of self-regulate. And to do that, you need to like educate yourself. John and Hank Green, the Vlogbrothers from YouTube, they have a second channel called Crash Course where they, they kind of do a, a ground up basic approach to a whole bunch of different subjects like literature and history and a bunch of stuff. Uh, they're going to start a media literacy one and, and data management and privacy online and a whole bunch of that stuff is going to be covered in good detail. Though I think the whole point is to help arm people against you know basically all the issues that have been, uh, have been coming up recently around privacy and data online. Yeah, and those are two powerful individuals I'm happy to concede to. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, speaking of powerful billionaires who have control over media, um, this is an Irish story that I kind of missed until a couple of days ago and it was pointed to me and I was like, holy shit, that is huge. How did I miss that? Lay it on me. Irish News and Media, they, that's the name of the corporation that owns quite a chunk of the Irish public um, broadcasters, radio stations, and uh, they own the Irish Independence, Herald and Sunday Independence, big, some of the biggest newspapers in Ireland. But the thing is, is that Irish News and Media is largest shareholder is Dennis O'Brien, who is Ireland's richest individual. Yeah. You said he was like the Irish Rupert Murdoch. He's like the Irish Rupert Murdoch, but he also has his fingers in many other pies apart from just um, journalistic communications. Mm -hmm. So he's just a general bazillionaire. Right. And he likes to wield his influence to try and shut people up when they say bad things about him. Oh God, where's this going? (laughs) Which has always been a dangerous thing when the person who owns some and controls so much media doesn't like people talking about him. Yeah. We're talking like litigation here. Yeah, we're talking, we're talking full on laws, um, full on the lawsuits. Mm Mm-hmm. And it turned out that in 2014, the email accounts of 19 staff members of Irish News and Media, including quite a few of its journalists, the, the, e- the backups of their emails were taken outside of the company, sent to the Isle of Man to be restored so that somebody could read them. And it was paid for by a different company owned by Dennis O'Brien. What? It's all still being discussed at the moment by the watchdogs who are investigating it. And I think there's a high court investigation as well. Right. But the suspicion is, is that Dennis O'Brien wanted to know what the sources were telling journalists about him and his business practices. Oh my God. So that's dodgy. Oh my God. That's dodgy. That's so dodgy. So dodgy. So let's just give a bit of context. Dennis O'Brien is, he's an evil billionaire. He made his vast fortune. (laughs) By a, a very dirty deal um, to do with uh, telecoms broadcast licensing back in the 90s where Michael Lowry, who was a Fine Gael minister, basically sold it to him for a €400,000 ca- pound cash payment, um, which is all investigated through tribunals and stuff. But for some reason, neither of them have been prosecuted and both of them are still very successful mm. individuals. Um, mm. Curious. So Dennis O'Brien used that, sold it and used the basis of that money to become an internet or not an internet, a like a telecoms billionaire like through um, opening up stuff in the Caribbean and in Eastern Europe and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He owns oil companies. He owns petrol stations. He owns so much stuff. Wow. It's, it's, it's terrifying. If this was to appear on his radar that I said these bad things about him, the likelihood is that he would try and use Ireland's pretty strict libel and... Um, What's the other word? Slander. Slant, libel, slander, yeah, and uh, defamation laws to sue me. To sue, uh, you, to sue you or to sue us, Steve? Well, I said it. So maybe me. Okay. Because we're not an organization yet. We don't have, there's no, there's no media company to back us up. Imagine he bought Wild on Politics, like right out from underneath us. <laughs> Who's going to... Oh, we are so cheap. <laughs> like we cannot be worth a lot. <laughs> we agree to sell ourselves out so we could, so we could fire us. Yeah. That's easy. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that. He just sues you and takes everything you have. Oh, okay. Um, he even like, he sued RTE because they played the recording of what a, a, a member of the doll said about him in parliament. And like, you can say things about people in parliament with parliamentary privilege without being sued. It's like one of the benefits of democracy. And when RTE, when RTE played what the, what the politician said, he sued RTE. What? That's, that doesn't sound, just, that sounds counterintuitive. He sues first and asks questions later. And usually Ireland has got ah. really strict defamation laws. So he gets away with it quite a lot and people are afraid of him. So it is dangerous that this is the precedent he's setting. And now people are wondering, is it appropriate to have this pretty bad individual having so much influence over such a large chunk of Irish media and journalism? It's not good for democracy. Mm, No, definitely not. So yeah, 
Um, you may not hear. I'm, I'm scared to say. Any, I'm scared to say anything. <laughs> I don't lose my fifty percent share of what I'm politics industries. Uh, yeah, no, you'll be fine. Fifty percent of nothing is still nothing. <laughs> so what are we? What are we going to talk about? What's the What's the main topic for this episode? Let's talk about gun control. Let's talk about it. Hey, Steve, what I'm gun control? We've threatened to talk about it for quite a lot because over the year and a bit that we've been doing this episode, quite a few times in the United States, there have been mass shootings where lots of people died because of guns. Yes, granted. Guns are not only made and sold in the United States of America. People do not only die on the hands of guns in the US. But this episode is mostly going to look at the US because in terms of modern, developed Western countries, the US is such an outlier in terms of people that die through gun violence. Of course. Like, I mean, we are going to name check other places, but please forgive us if you think that this is too US centric. Because there are 300 million guns in civilian hands in the United States. Oh, what? That's not even counting, like... Sorry, sorry, 300 million. 300 million. What? One in three households have got guns in them. Oh my God. And so that means, if you think about it, there's 300, like there's probably, I think there's like 80 million households in the US when you take it all in. So that's, that's a lot of guns in a lot of houses. Lord God. Americans make up 5% of the population, but 42% of all the privately held firearms are there. This is the issue with the subject. The numbers are so damning. It's insane. We're going to, like, to anyone that, that disagrees with the notion of gun control, like anyone that actually listens to this and has got different views of us, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to roll their eyes. But I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we should stab, establish up top our, our own bias and perspective before we get into it, because it is going to, it's, it is going to colour our whole, our whole take on this. Guns are not toys. People should not have guns. Personally, I love them. <laughs> That's amazing. Do we not talk about it? I love them. Yeah, like, I mean, you did, like, in the rifles that you're not using, you melted them down and made, like, a Game of Thrones. Like, instead of the, the throne of blades, you had, like, a throne of guns. Yeah, that's me. No, I, I, I can't stand them. The only guns I care about are these. I'm, I'm pointing at my arms. Oh, yeah? Do you have, do you <laughs> have, do you have pictures of laser guns or something? On your, drawn on I your arms? Tattooed onto them. Yeah. No, muscles, Steve, muscles. Drawn on your droopy biceps? I, I don't have muscles. <laughs> Let me just w- waggle my bingo wings and agree with you there. Bing- What's bingo wings? You don't know what bingo wings are. I don't know what bingo, What's you know, bingo wings. You know the bit of flab that hangs off the bottom of your arm, like underneath. Hold on, I'm Goog- I'm googling bingo wings. Bingo wings, folds of loose flesh or skin hanging from the underside of a woman's upper arms is what Google says. Yeah, because Let's switch the image tab. Oh my god, don't hey hey public service announcement. Don't ever Google and search bingo wings. I just want. Why is it bingo? Is it? Because it's like the stereotype is old ladies waving their hands at bingo, and then the flab is like blub 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 blub. <laughs> oh no! Okay, God, that wasn't long before we went completely off. Topic. Oh, we have segued so quickly from such an important issue. Yeah. Okay. Right. Where were we? Okay. So yes. look, so we're establishing our own our own biases. Yeah, we are we are both very much against guns. And it's not just the mass shootings that take up the media every so often when they happen. I mean, in terms of people just dying at the hands of guns on a regular basis, it is insane. Like if you look at a pie chart of people that die by gun violence, the tiny slice of mass shootings would shock you compared to how many people in America just die on a day to day basis because they're shot. It is nuts. Christ. Yeah. It's and like I mean, it's not just because of the prevalence of guns. That are causing these deaths, like other factors, poverty, urbanization, alcohol consumption, drug consumption, just mm-hmm. general unhappiness and unwell, like that other other problems in the United States contribute to this. But when you take all these things apart and compare United States to other places, it is the guns, the amount of guns yes. that is causing it. It is it is it, it is the worst catalyst and the worst. It is scientifically proven that that's why. Yeah, yeah. So yes. why the flip? 
do, do America does America have so many guns? Yeah, are you genuinely asking me? I would like to hear your take. Uh, it's the it's the Second Amendment, am I right? The right to bear arms. You, that's yes. built into the Constitution. Yes, it simply is. <laughs> that's it. It's it. It's like I mean, that is the single reason. Yeah, it's like like the, it, 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 that's not like when they wrote when the founding fathers. Uh, or whoever wrote the or whoever, <laughs> no, was, yeah, no, it was them. It wasn't anybody else. <laughs> I don't know who. I don't know who, I, who else I was thinking. <laughs> like you got it damn right, but then you you, you caveated it just I in case. Completely <laughs> or the founding for you know, like the uh, the establishment nuns or. Yeah, or, or, uh, or Doctor Who in that yeah. episode, or he went back in the, time. The construction, the, the construction cousins, or the uh, yeah, <laughs> the solution sisters. I don't know who it was. Uh, yeah. Anyway, when they wrote the the manifest the, mothers, wrote, <laughs> uh, when they wrote the, the building blocks brothers. Oh my god! <laughs> when they wrote the constitution and they said the right to bear arms. Like, what was their intent? How far were they, um, like, what what were they trying to encompass with that amendment? Like, what were they trying to... Well, this to, is the question. To, this is the question, basically, the, the bazillion dollar question that has racked, especially the last couple of decades, if not the time before. So th- it's pretty short, and I'll just read the second amendment. A, re- a well-regulated mi- militia, comma, and the commas are important, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed, full stop. So... Right. Technically, what we think is that James Madison, one of the founding fathers, or whoever, <laughs> the Building Rock Brothers, <laughs> he he was afraid that in creating this constitution and new form of American governance, they were going to create another American, like an American tyrant to take over from the tyrants that they had just gotten rid of. So he thought that allowing the state militias, which were like the primary military function back then, to keep their guns like enshrined in the constitution that no federal government could get too powerful because there would always be the threat that they could be they could be rebe- rebelled against by the state militias that's what the general thinking is okay and however fast forward 200 odd years or whatever pretty much 150 years it wasn't really a question no no country in the world really had strict gun control laws for between the founding of the United States up until the modern era because there were no guns on a mass-produced scale. It wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> right, right. And the guns that people had were like muskets, where it was like, plow, oh no, oh, I need to reload, hang on there. I need 10 minutes. <laughs> There's actually, one of my favourite movies is uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, and there's a great scene where like um, one of the guys is trying to convince a congressman to vote his way, and the congressman just shoots him with a pistol, and then the guy's like, oh fuck, he misses, and then the congressman is like reloading and like putting the ball <laughs> in and pushing it down, and the guy has time to like pick up his papers, kick dirt at him, and then run away. <laughs> before the guy is able to take a second shot. So that's what, it wasn't that big a deal. And in the United States, there was a lot of work going on in the frontier where you needed a gun to protect yourself against big, scary animals and dangerous people. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, to kill the native people and take their land. Well, let's brush over that one. That's a different episode. episode. Um, And then on the East Coast, the people who wanted to do do nefarious things, potentially with guns, couldn't afford them. So they just had to make do with knives or knuckles. Or knuckle knives. Oh, that's a great invention. Patent it, quick. (laughs) I think Wolverine beat us to it, but whatever. (laughs) Damn it. It wasn't really until the 1930s that the federal government had to step in and say, right, we need to do something about it. Because if you remember your movies, the Prohibition era happened during the 20s and there were a lot of gangsters Mm -hmm. killing a lot of people and themselves with lots of guns. So mm-hmm. FDR, when he came in in the 30s, said, oh, I'm going to have to try and bring in some rest- restrictions against the sales and possession of things like sh- sawn-off shotguns, Tommy guns, these kind of gangland weapons that were killing a lot of people. 
nobody yeah. nobody nobody raised an eyebrow it was it was it was a sensible law until one gangster dude just was caught with a sawn off shotgun and decided to take the case all the way to the supreme court it was kind of one of these test cases where they let the laws come forward because they want to test the law against the constitutionality so he was like just to see if it works just to see if it'll pass so the supreme court actually backed the government by saying a sawn off shotgun has got nothing to do with keeping a, a well armed militia so mm-hmm. yes you are entirely right. The government is entirely right to stop you from keeping that gun. And even up until the 60s, there were lots of politicians getting assassinated and the Nixon government tried to bring in further restrictions on gun gun, gun holding. And the, mm. the, the fight back against it didn't come from the right as it does now. It was actually from the left. Really? So organizations like the Black Panthers were worried that the government were going to come in and try and take their guns, which they were trying to use to defend their rights. Right. So yeah, it was kind of like, it was an interesting dichotomy back then as well. And Nixon, yeah, like yeah. people were trying to claim that there's an individual right to bear arms into the Second Amendment, which was not established. And Nixon called them people dirty liars or some such <laughs> some such uh, thing, which is ironic, but yeah, also interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. From what you read, it said militias, mm-hmm. equipped militias. But now, you know, a, a normal homeowner who has a gun in their, like a pistol in their, you know, nightstand or whatever, they're not militia. So, Well, that's the comma. That's the problem with the comma. We'll get to that. Okay. So it was in the 80s that the culture started to change and the NRA really became a big deal. And they started to push for individuals being able to hold guns was a Second Amendment right. And I guess... Okay. It, it just the gun culture in the US became bigger and bigger. More people liked owning and buying guns, be it just for sports or because guns are cool in their eyes. Or, or even the more people who buy guns, the more people feel they need to buy guns. Yeah, but I guess like if your neighbours are buying guns, you're not buying guns to try and defend yourself against your neighbours. It's more like like in the flight to the suburbs and the fear of gangland crime and stuff. You thought that you had to protect your own home became a bigger and bigger thing. Yeah. So they just kept on buying more and more guns. It was like they, they, they managed to bring in some gun laws in the 80s, which formalized gun shows, which are like these big things in gun culture where you come together and like buy and sell guns and conventions and stuff. Mm-hmm. They formalized them, stopped the federal government from being able to keep a registry of gun owners. But they also banned people owning machine guns, right. which for some reason hadn't been brought up before. <laughs> so <laughs> Christ, it still is legal to own a machine gun that you bought or inherited built before the mid 80s. Inherited even? Yeah, because... You know, so even if you inherited like that gun is in your family now? Yeah. It's, and you're like a 19 year old or whatever, and you inherited that. That just that's no there's no problem with that. That's why that's why you still have the Nolan Gatling gun that you fire off that's, every that's very, every Christmas uh, on my on my birthday <laughs> and at Christmas. And they also as is tradition, <laughs> they also extended um, restrictions on silencers to include amendments to guns and like to make sure that. So it was like it was semi sensible thinking here. It's like okay, people don't need to have big machine guns at home, and they right. don't need to put silencers onto their handguns if they're just using them for, for protection. Right. It was in the nineties that there was like culturally though there was this big there was this big fear about gangland violence and like guns being misused too much in the 90s so the Bill Clinton administration came in and banned semi-automatic weapons up until and that law lasted until 2004 and this is a pretty interesting period because it's always being brought back now they didn't actually see a decrease in gun violence during that time even with the ban on semi-automatic weapons even with that ban yeah so that 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 law was brought in in 94 and the phrase is sunsetted because it wasn't renewed in 2004 there was provisions built into the original law that it would die away unless congress decided to bring it back that was the last big federal gun control um, law was 94. Mm. The Supreme Court, apart from that decision back in the 30s, had actually been pretty quiet on most Second Amendment issues up until 2010 when 
a fella who was living in DC decided to challenge restrictions in the city about him being able to take his handgun, which he used as a security worker home and, and keep it on his person. And he actually, he successfully challenged it because the Supreme Court decided that the comma in the, in the sentence of the Second Amendment, where it says, to the security of a free state after the militia part, comma, the right mm. of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. So they think that that comma after free state means that the founders wanted to also allow the people who are individuals to keep guns. Not and if that comma wasn't there. If that comma wasn't there, it would, it would just be a bit malicious. Wow. And some people even think that the comma might be a smudge. <laughs> no way. <Yeah. laughs> this is just uh, an Oreo stain. <laughs> that's ja- that's James Madison's tobacco juice leaked out of his gob. <laughs> <laughs> it's a possibility, but unfortunately yeah, oh it influences some of the most important laws in the United States. So, Man. And the Supreme Court actually jumped in and overturned that law and actually changed the previous understanding that these laws apply just to federal governments to actually say, no, the constitution is above state government too. So state restrictions on gun control has to have to be pulled back too. So in the United States, every state, their gun control is the exact same. No, there's still stricter provisions in different states under what the, so the Supreme Court did put a caveat on it. They can't just say everyone can have whatever gun they want. They said the court's opinion should not be taken to cast out on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons, the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools, government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So that last part there is where they're saying that some states, if you want to have like a three, like some states, you, you can't buy a gun. You can ask to buy a gun and then you're not going to get it for three days afterwards. Mm-hmm. Or there's more extensive background checks. Or even in Chicago, Chicago is one of the most famous ones because it pretty much has an almost ban on weapons. It's so difficult to be able to Chicago buy or Illinois? Chicago, not Illinois. The city? The city. Yeah. Okay. I think there may be Illinois laws, but it, they only count specifically for Chicago because it has such terrible instances of gun violence. Not actually the worst right, in the US, course, yeah. but still pretty bad. And the prop- Where is the worst? Um, probably Flint, Michigan, I think maybe, or Detroit or somewhere like that. Equally kind of the same kind of thing. Um, socially, socially disadvantaged areas with like pretty low yeah. like rates of crime enforcement and pretty high rates of poverty. Uh, yeah. So the problem there you can see is that oh, even if Chicago tried to have these strict laws, all you need to do is get into your car, drive to another part of Illinois or just drive across the border at Indiana where you can just buy a gun however you want and then drive it back to Chicago. <laughs> Sorted. In a Walmart. Yeah, probably. <laughs> While you're getting your groceries yeah. and a fast TV. And your high-capacity um, semi-automatic magazine cartridge. Oh, my God. So it really all comes down to the Second Amendment. Um, if yeah. the US didn't have the Second Amendment, you wouldn't be having these questions. So, like, in Australia in the 90s in, in Tanzania... Did I get it right? That's, that's the correct name for the island off the south coast of Australia. Tasmania? Shit! Did you say Tanzania? Tanzania. That's not even a place anywhere. No, that just sounds like a mispronunciation of Tanzania. <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably what that was. Um, <laughs> Tasmania had a mass shooting in the 90s where a lot of people were killed by a single individual who decided to just take up a gun and kill them. So they immediately banned all semi-automatic rifles and pretty strict like handgun controls and offered to buy back everyone's private weapons. And it worked. Yeah, and, it and there hasn't very been... Very successful, wasn't there, it? Yeah, there was very, very successful. They managed to take up like hundreds of thousands of guns and there hasn't been another mass shooting since. There are still quite a few areas in Australia that have got pretty high gun violence, but as a whole, they've seen it as, as a generally good thing across across the country. Mm-hmm. The UK actually did a similar thing. There was a shooting in Scotland and they banned 
Um, they put even stricter gun control laws in there. And there's only been like one instance of a mass shooting where this dude went nuts with a sniper rifle. But apart from that, it's been pretty, it's been pretty quiet. And yeah, like, for example, in Ireland, if you want to buy a gun, you have to go to your guardie and get like a sign off to say you can get it. And the guards will only give it to you if you can justify why you want it. Right. So you have to show membership of a shooting club mm-hmm. or proof that you want to, to hunt vermin. Or if you want like, like a higher grade of rifle for hunting deer, you need to prove that you, that you're actually going to go and hunt deer. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, you can't get it. And there's no uh, there's no semi-automatic guns. There's no handguns. Right, nothing yeah, like that. Just yeah. basically shotguns and rifles, things that you could justify having. Yeah. And we can do that because it's not in our constitution. But you can't have abortions in Ireland because it is in our constitution. Right. We're working on that one. We're working on that one. And that's this is the thing about the US. So they have the Second Amendment, which for the moment looks like it's not going to be overturned. Granted, you could get a new Supreme Court in who would change the opinion Mm-hmm. and perhaps overturn what the understanding is of the Second Amendment. That's not very likely, though. No. Um, no. Do you think just because it's too ingrained in the DNA of the of the country, it's too big of a change? No, I think it's just, it's, it's just that there's, there's not going to be another, there's not going to be another Supreme Court justice retiring that it can be renominated by a Democrat. And the, the, right. So and it's the, a much more practical Repo- reason. Yeah, yeah, it's a very p- practical political thing. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, if it was a majority Democratic uh, or liberal um, Supreme Court, like, they probably would overturn it and decide that it's no, it's all about militias. States can have whatever restrictions they want. Mm. And that's not going to happen anytime, like anytime soon. So that's the crack. That's gun yeah. control. Can I, ask a, can I ask a semi-serious question? Please. Just say like tomorrow, someone were to invent a laser gun, like a hand solo laser, like hand blaster. Would that automatically be covered by the same gun laws? Or would do you think that would be something completely separate that we'd have to deal with? I think... The laws specify firearms. So that would technically be a firearm. Yeah, I wonder, because a crossbow, is that a firearm? I don't know. I assume so. I don't think so. I think it might be categorized as something else. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What about about a gun that fired, like, small, confused, feral kittens? Um, That's not a firearm. That's just a a weapon of torture for small animals. There's there's different laws covering that, thankfully. (laughs) Okay, good. I hope <laughs> it would be it would be called a catapult. By the way, oh, bye forever. <laughs> so, Richie, I know I've been talking a lot about gun control in the United States, even though the fact that I'm an Irish dude sitting in Ireland talking to a dude sitting in London who may have lived yeah. in America, but re- realistically, yeah, what, do you, what do you know, Steve? Uh, nothing, but I do know yeah. that we know someone who does know the the no. You know? I don't, because that wasn't English, what you just used there. Please okay. re-articulate what you're going to say. Basically, Richie, what I'm saying is is that, do you like putting dildos on your bag and walking around universities? Like it? I love it. Well then, you're going to like Jessica Jin, who's going to tell us about the Coxnock Blacks campaign. That sounds like Blacks, take it again. You fucking say Coxnock Blacks after drinking a 7.2% <laughs> IPA, Okay. Cool. Let's get let's get right into it then. I guess poor choice of words. Uh, so we are <laughs> we are we are joined by Jessica Jin, founder of Cox Not Glocks. Jessica, how's it going? I'm great. How are y'all? Good. Oh, you say y'all? <laughs> we're talking to someone from Texas here. This is amazing. It's amazing. so much more efficient than you. You or you guys or you know? In Ireland, in Ireland, yeah. we say ye. Yeah. Which is a bit more a bit more yes. archaic. Your yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yizzers, if you're from Dublin. Yizzers. Yizzers. Yeah. Yizzers, yeah. <laughs> Feel free to use that. Uh, 
Cool, but we're here, we're here not to talk about the plural of you. We're here to talk about the Cox Not Glox campaign that, Jessica, you are a founder of. For people who aren't familiar, do you want to just talk about the what the genesis of Cox Not Glox was? Yeah, sure. So on August uh, 20-something, 2016, my friends and I passed out 5,000 dildos and vibrators <laughs> to students at the University of Texas, Austin uh, on the first day of class. And we told them, strap this to your backpack and go to school like nothing's different. And we did that because I had discovered purely by accident about a year before that although it was becoming legal for students to carry loaded concealed handguns inside of their backpacks in Texas, it's still illegal to openly wave a dildo around. Um, And so I thought it was super funny that, you know, society and culture in America is super uh, accepting of gun violence and gun culture, and they don't think anything of it. But if you were to wave a very silly silicone harmless toy around you could get in some trouble mm, that's quite an odd dichotomy all right so how did the protest play out on the day uh it was delightful i mean the rolling <laughs> stone wrote about it and they said something that i want to tattoo onto my butt cheek or <laughs> get engraved on my gravestone and they said that we were tossing dildos into a crowd of outstretched arms with the fervor of a humanitarian mission <laughs> oh my god what evocative so, imagery i'm just so proud of that <laughs> That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. We've heard tell that there was somebody wielding something called Coxzilla. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, what's that? Oh yeah, Coxzilla is like a forearm size, (laughs) three forearm size dildo. Uh, It was gifted to us by Dreamers, who is the local Texas sex shop chain. Um, Up until 2008, it was illegal to own more than six dildos in Texas. Um, (laughs) Why six? Wait, what? Why did they draw the Uh, line at six? Because if you have more than six, then apparently you have an intent to sell. And if you're selling and distributing dildos, then you could be, you know, sullying society. So they capped it at six. And uh, Dreamers, which is a sex shop that helped us out a lot uh, with the protests, they actually, their parent company sued the state and they challenged this law um, and they managed to get the ban overturned. But when they were fighting for it, our Senator Ted Cruz, I don't know if you know that guy. He's oh, a, we know him. Uh, yeah, we know. Ted Cruz, his office had to write a statement like defending this law. And they said Ted Cruz actually wrote like in like a published document that people have no constitutionally protected right to masturbation. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I can just picture those words coming out of that creep's mouth. Oh, that is so gross. <laughs> Oh, I was I was wondering why a couple of years ago, I, like everyone in the world just shivered, and it's because he said those words. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's yep. that's incredible. So uh, how how was this whole movement and and an event received? Like, did it make much of a difference on campus? Um, the law had already passed. It was a very reactionary uh, protest. It's because like I wasn't that politically involved before all of this. I did, actually hadn't ever wanted to put a public opinion about gun control out there because in the U.S. and especially in Texas, as soon as you put an opinion out there, you know you're going to have to fight about it for the rest of your life. You know, it's just not something most people want to get involved in. This whole thing happened by accident. Like I cracked this joke on Facebook by creating an event and thinking that only my friends would get a good kick out of it and then we could just move on. (laughs) But I woke up the next morning and like 10,000 people had RSVP'd and people were offering to send me boxes and boxes of dildos. So (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, now I'm a gun control activist. I didn't mean to become one, but now I am. And, you know, if I actually had cared before, I probably would have been testifying at the state capitol and trying to fight the law before it even passed. But because I wasn't that, you know, politically engaged, I was, you know, a recent graduate. I was trying to make ends meet. I was like, what? You know, I um, was mostly like a a Twitter 
a Twitter activist. You know, I would retweet things or mm. share stuff on Facebook, but I wasn't actually on the ground doing stuff. A twactivist. Um, yeah, I was. <laughs> I wasn't that actually, you know, physically involved in doing things. So I wouldn't say that it would. Ha- it had a, a change in the law. It couldn't have changed the law because it already passed. And um, but what I think it did was uh, offered young students who like me would normally never put an opinion on gun control out there, mm-hmm. like a very easy way to take a stance. So it was, it's kind of like we lowered the threshold for participation. It's, it's like, if you wanted to go out there that afternoon and have fun and wave dildos around, you had to choose a side, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also showed a lot of young students, like it can be easy to raise a stink about something that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. And, um, with like, a really abysmal, sad, embarrassing voter turnout with millennials and young people. I think that's like a really important thing that we did. And secondly, I think one measure of success is now in every like comment on gun control articles, someone says the word dildo. Nothing else. We shifted like this public perception a little bit, like, you know, as if like the gun lobby is something that can't be totally made fun of constantly. Um, we, we love to like be able to take ownership over the fact that we can feel comfortable lambasting the shit out of them. Um, and, uh, I think it forced society to think twice about what we think is acceptable in day-to-day life. You know, in Texas, you can now openly strap a handgun in public places in school. You have to still keep them concealed, but walking down the street, you can take a handgun down the street. And it's always been legal for you to carry a rifle on your back loaded and walk down the street in any public space in Texas. So, um, the fact that a lot of people got really mad about our our dildo protests, but then had to slow down for a second and be like, you know, I'm shielding my child's eyes from these dildos, but like, why have I never thought the same thing about the rifles that are just being floated around society? Rifles are already very phallic anyway. There's not (laughs) that much of a difference. There's not the fodder for dick jokes. It was a very punny protest. Um, Mm. People got very, very mad about it. But I think with the anger, I think it forced people to like re-examine for a second, like why they were reacting so viscerally to something so harmless, Mm. whereas they just let gun culture just float by. Um, for so long. I mean, absurdity is such a great tool for these kind of things because you're basically doing that. You're fighting absurdity with absurdity. Mm-hmm. Like what what you're doing, your reactionary stuff is as absurd as the law itself. So it's really just one big mirror that you're holding up, which is great. And it's also so nice to see humor in a space where you don't usually see humor at all. Not when it comes to something like gun control. It's a very solemn subject. Yeah. So it's so refreshing to see a, move, a movement that's based on humor. Yeah, it, I think that the absurdity really cut through a lot of the contentious conversations because if you approach it in, in a traditional manner, you run into the same arguments. It's very predictable and no one budges. Mm. But if you come at it from an unexpected angle, a lot of people are like, oh, angle. yeah, if you... <laughs> If you insert yourself (laughs) like unexpected means, it causes people to think twice for a second about these ideas that they hold so dearly. And you're right that gun control is a very, very sad, dark, solemn space to work in. And a lot of the people that I've met in the gun control community, they aren't there by choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They had to become part of this community because they lost somebody that they loved and really cared about to gun violence. And they always call themselves like the club of people that that you never want to be part of. It's a club you never want to join, but it's something that they had no choice to do because they didn't want what happened to them to happen to anybody else. Of course. So gun control is such a contentious subject. You must have experienced pushback in a a variety of forms. Wondering, could you talk about that a little bit? Um, Yeah. 
Yeah. Did you guys see that one Nazi who was crying on camera after the Charlottesville Nazi rally? Yes. Everyone made fun of him and called him the crying Nazi. Uh, (laughs) When he actually runs like a rather populist anarchist blog, he's like a commentator, a pundit, has his own YouTube channel or whatever. When I first cracked the viral dildo joke, it hit 4chan about like a day later. Uh, And that's when like the worst of the worst people came out of the woodwork of the Mm. internet, which was expected. Like I knew it was bracing myself for it anyway, but he published my address and my phone (gasps) number on his anarchist blog and told all of his Nazi followers like where to find me if they wanted to tell me what they thought about my protest. And I was like, Hey, you might've just sent a bunch of like terrible people with guns to my doorstep. And he was like, I sure hope so. Cause we need people like you out of the gene pool. Oh, I, no. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this guy lives somewhere not in Texas. And if anybody comes to my doorstep and tries to hurt me, then they're just going to prove my point that these guys with guns don't have any control over their tempers and shouldn't be trusted with guns. You know? So mm-hmm. I was like, puffing out my chest a little bit and being like, well, they're not going to come hurt me, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of my friends were like, Jessica, you have to file a police report and you have to leave your apartment. (laughs) And I was like, and then as soon as my friends started expressing concern for me, that's when I started to freak out. You know, like I was okay at first and I was like, it's just a bunch of internet trolls. And when my friends are like looking at me with genuine concerned looks on their faces, that's when I was like, oh, I should be worried, shouldn't I? And I like started (laughs) crying. But like, and I, and I kind of turned it into this whole, I was working remotely at the time anyway. So I turned it into a whole like obnoxious, I'm running from Nazis trip. And I took my laptop and my national parks pass, dropped my cat off with a friend, threw a tent in the back of my car. And I drove out West and went camping for like three months in like the Southwest and had like the most, the greatest, most American time ever, like exploring the national parks and being like, I'm on the run because I'm a patriot and I'm running from these gun nuts. It was super, I like spun it into something super fun, but like it wasn't, being a gun control activist is not fun. And like, for me, it was, it stemmed from humor and I was able to, you know, spin it into something fun every single time I ran into something awful. But I was watching the survivor, uh, father of a girl named Jamie, Jamie Gutenberg, who was shot at Parkland two months ago, posting on Twitter yesterday. And he was like, it's been two months since my daughter was shot. And, you know, I'll never forget like, I'm just going to be fighting her for the rest of my life. So if you don't believe in universal background checks, if you don't believe in these really simple, basic measures, feel free to like direct message me and we'll, I'll talk about why you're wrong. Mm. And I was watching him and I was like, I can't imagine having to do this as a survivor, you know, like having lost somebody and still having to fight this fight. Because for me, it's fun, but it's still like horrifically exhausting and soul draining to have to confront these people every single day. But if you're a survivor... I can't freaking imagine, you know? And I tweeted back at him and I was like, you're going to like, I don't want you to burn yourself out because like these people aren't earnestly trying to get their minds changed. They're just trying to troll you and you don't deserve that because you're dealing with the worst thing in the entire world. And the rest of us are fighting for Jamie, you know, like you should be taking care of your family and yourself first. And I think activists in this space are really subjecting themselves to a lot of emotional turmoil that is really, really terrible for you. And I think what we have to do as activists is to reach out to each other and take care of each other and be like, you know, you have space to step back Mm -hmm. and we'll do the fighting for you. And like, you should protect yourself at all costs from, sorry, my cat just like exploded off of the couch and caused a bunch of things to fall everywhere. Um, <laughs> Let's get her on the show. What does she think? Yeah. She's running around trying to get my attention because she's an asshole. Oh. Um, so yeah. So I was like, 
I, I think about this a lot that like, I feel periodically very, very drained from this fight and I don't want to engage. I just want to step back and not say anything a lot of times. And, um, because it's a lot of work, you know, but I think it's incumbent on us who haven't had to suffer this kind of trauma to do the work because otherwise it's just a band of survivors who have gone through the worst of the worst and shouldn't be doing this work. It should be the rest of society stepping in and being like, you take care of yourself and we'll take care of you. You know? Um, so I think that's the thing that keeps me going Mm -hmm. is that despite how exhausting this is and despite how much hate you have to come across, you kind of have like this duty to survivors and especially the more survivors you get to know, um, the more you realize you can't turn around and be like, never mind, I don't want to engage in this anymore. You know, mm. um, you don't really have a choice. Of course. That's a beautiful sentiment. So, um, what kind of, what kind of legs has the, has the campaign taken since, since, um, the, the protests on, in the, on the campus have, are you part of like the national campaign against us? Um, I got really involved with the folks in DC and policymaking and think tanks and the big gun control groups for a while when I was running around preparing for Cox Nut Clocks and like in the year after. But ever since, like I've been taking kind of, uh, I've been like my ideas on how all of this work have started to shift a little bit because when I walked into those rooms with hundreds of state leaders of gun control groups, because in the U S you have to fight the state by state, right? Like if you pass a law in Texas to say, or if you pass a law in Washington to remove guns from domestic abusers, you've only won that like one fiftieth of the battle in the United sure. States. You have to pass that 50 times over and laws like that get proposed year after year and like shot down year after year. And to win one in one state is a huge victory, but you realize how much more work there is to be done in every state. But so there's giant national meetings of state leaders in DC multiple times a year. And I've gone to a few of them. And when I walk into the room, I notice that these groups are really, really white. <laughs> and like as a woman of color, like it's something that you notice right away. And especially if you guys have seen Get Out, mm-hmm. yeah. something that you notice even more often these days, it's like, oh, you know, it's 2018 when you walk into a room of people trying to make laws for all of society and it looks predominantly white, you have a little bit of something to worry about because there's certain experiences that you just haven't had to deal with as a white person in America, which is like an extremely like historically racist place, you know? Um, It's like a a lot of America was built on the back of racism. And for, if you're going to try to make laws that affect a lot of people, and these are things that you haven't had to live with and contend with your entire lives, that creates a lot of dangerous practices, right? Um, I noticed through, like, I'm starting to feel a little disillusioned with traditional approaches to gun control, especially when I watch people of color who are much more experienced than me proposing things uh, that would protect communities of color, which are disproportionately affected by gun violence. So they would go into these spaces and they'd be like, hey, how about lay off on some of this reliance on police force to keep communities safe because that actually hurts communities of color. And these giant rooms full of white people are like, no, we need the police, you know? Mm -hmm. And they like shoot down these ideas proposed by people who represent communities that are disproportionately affected by gun violence. And I watch it happen over and over and over again. And I also watch, you know, like Muslim activists go in and say, you know, after the Pulse nightclub shooting, everyone jumped on this idea that we should ban people on the no-fly list from buying guns. Like this is like the government list that says, hey, you might be a terrorist, therefore you can't fly on a plane. 
but there's no like due process to get off of that list. No one knows how you wind up on that list. And that list is mostly made up of brown people, you know? Um, so after the pulse shooting, all of this, all of the politicians and all the gun control groups started like push this giant campaign saying, if you're on the, if you're too dangerous to fly, you should be too dangerous to buy a gun. But Muslim activists would raise their hand and be like, that's a mystery list just targeting and profiling brown people. And yeah. is that the ship that you want to, is that the hill that you want to die on? You know, is that the ship that you want to tie your entire progressive movement to is a discriminatory list, you know? Mm. And so there's just lots of this like kind of toxic stuff going on that I'm not that sure about. And I think a lot of my work recently has been like, how do I use the, spend the attention that this silly dildo protest has gotten me <laughs> and like, it's given me a huge spotlight and a, and a platform uh, to say something and what can I use this attention for? And I think what I want to start to transition this into is to have more frank conversations about what actually works and what might actually hurt people when it comes to what people brand as a very progressive space. You know, um, a lot of the traditional approaches threaten to harm a lot of communities of color. And I think that passing my microphone or passing my spotlight to these organizations and groups that are doing work that I actually believe in, um, is going to be my work going forward, but we're still slinging dildos around. I mean, <laughs> Oh yeah. So I should name drop a couple organizations. Um, Go for it. uh, one is the community justice reform coalition and it's run by my friend, Amber Goodwin, who is like an incredible organizer. And she's put together this entire network of faith leaders, community leaders, and like public health people and, um, basically their philosophy is if you want to prevent gun violence, you have to like envelop these individuals who are at risk of committing gun violence in a blanket of community support. You have to also be funneling funds towards people who are actually rolling up their sleeves in the community most affected by gun violence and doing the actual work with the people in the community. Um, it's not so much of a policy like a top-down policy sort of approach. It's a very community-based approach, which doesn't rely so much on law enforcement. Yeah, you have to like build trust between law enforcement and communities, but this is more about like how can a community step in and like embrace like troubled and like kids who are like at risk of being in trouble. I think that sort of thing is the most exciting work that is being done on gun violence prevention these days because it means that everyone is stepping in and we're lifting up the people who are closest to the pain. I'm excited about all the work that Amber's doing. And I think that everyone needs to be giving her money. And <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, you know, like inviting her on the podcast and doing all of this <laughs> and just, you know, be like, trust black women to do this work because they've been shouting about this forever. And what you guys have been doing hasn't necessarily been working, but you don't have to wait for 50 laws in 50 states to be passed. You know, yeah. gun violence prevention can happen without laws. It can happen with communities really just rolling up their sleeves and dedicating themselves to this cause. Um, but yeah, we are still slinging dildos around. Um, we had a film premiere at South by Southwest recently. It's like a little short about me ugly crying a lot and throwing dildos out in the clouds. <laughs> and, um, there's another one in the works by a couple uh, female filmmakers that I'm pretty excited about. And, uh, we have a couple hundred dicks at UW Madison in Wisconsin. There's this, uh, right wing, young millennial blonde gun pro gun girl who is a woman who was going to speak on campus. And one of the main tenets of the things that she speaks about is that guns are effective for preventing campus sexual assault and rape. And, uh, some of the students at UW Madison were like, we want to protest your speech because that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like 90% of 
sexual assault happens between someone that you know and trust. And it's not always just this boogeyman jumping out of the bushes. And when we're talking about campus safety and people keep trying to propose campus carry as a solution and they, you know, try to co-opt this whole campus sexual assault thing for their gun cause, we're just like, that's not how things work. And we're going to make fun of you. So (laughs) I looked at some Wisconsin laws and apparently in Wisconsin, you can't be drawing or creating any sort of, you can't like write something about penises or draw penises in public. That's an obscenity also. Um, if it has no political or artistic merit. Um, so I was like, we should throw a bona fide penis arts fest outside of her speech. Beautiful. And you guys should just draw shitty penises and write bad <laughs> penis haikus. And like, if anybody asks, just be like, I'm just making this just because it has no political or artistic merit. It's all bullshit. Um, just like what she's talking about inside of that auditorium, you know? Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of fun with that. It was rainy. They just wound up waving a lot of dildos around. But I think that, you know, I don't know about everyone else, but I'm kind of tired of dick jokes. I don't think they're that funny anymore. Like you guys are like cackling every time I mention them. But like at this point, I'm like, whatever, it's just another dick joke, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if anything, my experience through this has shown that playing through, like cutting through really contentious political topics with humor and absurdity is where our strengths are as an organization and where the strength of millennials and young people and people who are raised on the internet Mm -hmm. lays. So my goal right now is to hopefully, like I have this big dream and it's to raise a ton of funds from the sex industry Mm -hmm. and like, like pay student artists to make cool shit that make people mad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, or, uh, to make irreverent things that make people mad. So I've been in contact with sex toy distributors and, been trying to get a hold of porn companies to be like, we can get you on top of the news cycle in really, really conservative states. You know, mm. this is advertising that you would normally not get because <laughs> uh, these are really conservative states that wouldn't publish your ad in their newspaper, you know, mm-hmm. but we can have people talking about you when every time they try to pass a ridiculous gun law, we can put something out there that makes the news and rides the news cycle. And this, not only that, uh, but like, it's an entirely new demographic of customers for you because these are a lot of like newly 18 year old college students. And if you ever look at like the data from Pornhub searches, the freakiest people live in the most gun heavy States, like (laughs) the most conservative States have the biggest closet closet freaks, you know? So this is like a huge, this is like a huge untapped opportunity for the sex industry. So I, you know, have to work a full-time real big girl job, but in my spare time, I'm like working on this little dream of mine to be Mm -hmm. like, can I like somehow build a bridge between the sex industry and politics in red states and just raise hell, you know, just make people mad all the time, but Mm -hmm. also push the cultural conversation forward. There are hundreds of and thousands of people working on policy, but I think the cultural aspect is something that I can see myself doing sustainably because I won't burn myself out pranking people constantly, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, there's lots of room for these cultural conversations to be having to be had. So, um, yeah, that's the dream I'm building right now. <laughs> and what a dream. Yeah, I definitely, if anybody can do it, it sounds like that, uh, Jessica, you're the lady to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, Jessica, this has been, this has been brilliant. Yeah. Sorry for talking your entire ears off. It wasn't just a conversation. It was just a speech by me. Oh no, it was great. That's exactly what we, we needed. 
honestly. Uh, Jessica, where can people find you? Now, online, digitally, not in real life, because I don't want you to go on the run again from Nazis. Oh, yeah. Cox Not Glock is on Twitter and is on Facebook. Somebody's squatting on my Instagram handle, but I think I'm going to try to file some sort of copyright trademark thing and try to get it back from them. But uh, yeah, we're on Twitter and Facebook and uh, coxnutglocks.org. Okay, look, we'll let you go, Jessica. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Jessica. Have a good evening or whatever. It's three o'clock in the morning. Oh, God. I'm tired. It is? No, it's no. not. It's like half eight. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.